Well, before we begin our passage this morning, we need to talk about a comment that's in the Bible that sits right above John chapter 8. And if you're using a a phone or device, you might not find it until you scoot back to John chapter 7, because really this passage of Scripture, although I read it from John 8 verse 2, it begins in John 7 verse 53. So above John 7 53, you might have a note or you might have noticed that in your Bible, there's, there's brackets around the entire thing that we read, and it's there for a reason. The note in my Bible that sits above John chapter, uh, well, it's, it's above verse 53. It says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ma- ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 7 verse 53 all the way down to John chapter 8 verse 11. <clears throat> wow. And so you've got that note sitting there in the Bible, and, and add to that, if you were just reading along in the Gospel of John, you read through John chapter 7, and you read this thing, it, it might feel like a little bit of an interruption, and then you get down to verse 12, and it really seems that's where it, it picks, up, picks up again. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. It just, if you were to omit that thing that I just read, it would flow just quite nicely. From, from John chapter 7, verse 52, and, and skip it down to chapter 8, verse 12, you've got a nice rendition in the Gospel of John. It, re, reading that section in there feels a little awkward. It's a little clumsy. It does feel like a bit of a force fit. And then you get this thing, of, well, the earliest manuscripts don't have this. Well, is that even in the Bible? What am I supposed to do? Can I trust the Bible anymore? Okay, well, I have a brief explanation of that, and then I'll give to you a personal opinion And then we'll jump into the passage in some detail where I will be teaching that to you. My teaching time with regard to the actual passage of Scripture set before us basically will be half of what we normally do. But let's take a look at this. I want you to understand why that note is there and how it actually affirms your faith. First of all, the explanation as to why this is in the passage uh, or why this... um, Qualifying note sits above John chapter 8 is, is simply this. Way back in the day when the King James were chaptering things out and writing things out, um, they did the best they could with the manuscripts that they have. We have better, we have newer manuscripts now. They didn't have access to newer manuscripts. And so they, they included this one. And it was, it was there in the earliest things that they had, and it was good to them. King James was written in 1611, published. The next really good, um, I guess, <clears throat> modern translation, New American Standard, came out in 1971. Wow, 360 years is a long period of time. You would think we'd find out a few more things, and we did. In 1971, New American Standard came out, and they bracketed this. In 1973, and again in 1978, the NIV released their rendition. They lean s- s- quite strongly into readability. When I was coming out of a cult, I read the Bible, the NIV Bible, in the, began in, with the 1978 version, and, and I came to Christ in the fall of 1979, reading the NIV Bible. There you go. So they, they, they bracket this one as well, and they have, have the note. I read today from the 1984 NIV Bible. That was the earliest one I could get that I kept. Um, ESV and the Holman came out about the year 2000. The Holman was replaced by the Christian Standard Bible. ESV is probably the best in terms of technical uh, adherence to the literal Word of God that we have in our manuscripts as well as readability. Holman and also the Christian Standard Bible press a little bit 
harder into readability. But uh, the modern translations have access to manuscripts that the King James did not. That's quite simply all this note means. We have newer manuscripts today than what they had in 1611. Well, thank you, Lord, for providing us newer manuscripts for us to learn from like that. Now, just so you know, I don't take this lightly. I'm not glossing over this. I, I see this note here, and it's in very small font, probably size 3 font that I can barely read anymore. And I'm not trying to just gloss over it, and I'm not going to blitz by John chapter 8 and, and uh, hope you figure it out someday. I take this very seriously. I grew up in a secular atheist home with very little access to scripture. And the first time I got into religious things, it was with a group that claimed that they had a new and restored version of the truth, that they had received writings, ancient writings on gold plates from an angel that were given to one guy. And you couldn't prove that at all. It just said, here, here, this is it. This is the new and improved. And by the way, the Bible that you have in your hands or in your home doesn't work anymore. It's full of errors. So that, that was my first education as to religious things. I read their book, I joined the group, and then I read the Bible in that order. And that helped me to exit the group. Over time, I figured out that the group was wrong and the Bible was right. Somewhere along the line, pretty early on with, with regard to that, I figured out this is all about Jesus. This book talks a lot about Jesus Christ, and I need to know about Jesus. I needed some help, but I was able to get some help to uh, get me to the point where I understood Jesus Christ is the Son of God, fully God, fully man. I understood the deity of Jesus Christ. So looking at Jesus as the Son of God helped me to realize that Jesus had the right and the authority to, de to demand my life in service to him. But I just had to know, is this book trustworthy? Can I rely on this book that teaches me about Jesus Christ? Is it possible for me to read this book and trust Jesus Christ as the Son of God who is placing these demands upon my life? I'll give this to you as my opinion. I'm not a scholar, but I am deeply committed to the understanding and the truthful reliability of the Bible as the Word of God. I don't think this portion that we read this morning in John chapter 8 was part of the earliest Bibles. We have a note that says so. The earliest manuscripts and, the, uh, and many other ancient witnesses do not have, this, this, um, do not have John 7.53 falling forward. I do think this event really happened. I also don't think this fits the Gospel of John the way it lays out. But then again, I do think this fits with the Gospel of John. So where's it supposed to go? If you're a scribe and you're, you're encountering this, maybe five, six hundred, I don't know, years after somebody else, and you realize, boy, this sure fits with the Gospel of John, have no idea where it should go, I suppose this is a good place. I think this is an example of John chapter 1, verse 14. If you've got a Bible, turn a few pages. If you have a device, go back to John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14, talking about Jesus all the way down through uh, 1 through 18, which we sometimes call the prologue gospel of John. If you, if you need to go back and review anything, review the prologue. This is outstanding. Wow, this is brilliant. John chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is the Word. He's In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... Um, 
and the Word was God. And then you look at verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The way C.S. Lewis posited this, we made a suggestion in, in, in the writings of Mere Christianity, which I came to find out years later. It was a, an apologetic. He's writing in, in defense of the faith of Jesus Christ, trying to draw people into Christianity, and he, he gave this suggestion. If God invaded history, if Jesus is the Son of God, if, if Jesus is God in the flesh, then we ought to expect him to look differently as he lived his life. That he, as the way I've been saying it with, with the Gospel of John is that Jesus did things that only God would do. Jesus said things that only God would say. And so we have this description here that the Word became flesh. This is somebody who is with God from the beginning because he is God. The Word became flesh and we have seen the glory of the only God. We have seen God in the flesh. And, and fascinating that two descriptive words that they place with Jesus Christ here, he came full of grace and truth. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is that this is a real event that really happened. Yes, it was, it was inserted into the Gospel of John, but it puts Jesus on display as full of grace and truth. This is an um, illustration of John chapter 1, verse 14. Amazing. Well, let me push on this even further and suggest a question that I, I've already answered. Does this, did this event really happen? Let, let, let's just suppose for a moment that this event did not happen. Should that shake our faith? We've got this note here, earliest, back on John chapter 8, earliest manuscripts don't have it. Okay, so if this did not happen, should it shake our faith? I would say no, not for a moment, not an ounce. If this did not happen, what we have here is a, an honest admission of, of the transmission process. That over time, more and more manuscripts have been viewed and translated and articulated and reduced to uh, languages that we can understand. <clears throat> if somehow there was a conspiracy amongst scholars to hide things, we would not have this note. The fact that we do have this note speaks of full transparency. Here we are. When we first started the Bible translation work, we had X amount of manuscripts, and we didn't have John chapter 7, verse 53, down to John chapter 8, verse 11. But now we do have that, and so we're putting it in right here just the way somebody in the ancient world put it in. I feel much more comfortable with a, the insertion of this event than, than leaving it out entirely or just not even addressing it with brackets or with a little note. We have every reason to trust our Bibles. From the perspective of a guy who came to Christ out of a cult and desperately needed to know, is this book really true? Can we rely on this book? I'm giving, giving this to you as my opinion. I think the event happened, and yes, the Bible is fully, completely, wholly 
trustworthy. This is one of those areas where I've, I've just, I had to do a lot of reading when I came to Christ, and, and since then I, I just continue to read. I love the study of apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. I am really interested in the veracity and the integrity of Scripture. It's just one of my hobbies. I like to look at this. So I brought some books, and we're going to put the titles up on the screen. And, and the only reason, I don't think you can read this title from here. I, I understand that part. I just want you to see that these are smallish books, pretty easy to read. So the first one up there is Seven Reasons You Can Trust the, T the Bible, written by Erwin uh, Lutzer, who's a pastor in uh, the Illinois area. And uh, he writes in a way that's user-friendly. Honestly, I, I think what it is is a rendition of his sermons. Uh, fantastic stuff, though. Very interesting. Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible. The next one uh, was handed to me when I went to a conference, Can We Trust the Gospels? So not just the whole Bible, but looking at four books of the Bible, four Gospels, as we call them, by Peter Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels? And I've handed this out to some of you who are here in a core class. I loved it. I, it, it it's much, um, to me, it was, it was, wow, there's some new discoveries. Wow, I, I'm turning pages. Oh, I didn't know that. And I've been at this for a very long time. But here was uh, something that's written fairly recently, and, and he was showing off some, some new research that had been done. Third one, again, just a nice little book, Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert, who's done a lot of work helping us to understand the gospel. Love that little book. So there are some very accessible resources that you can read. You don't have to read start to finish. By the way, if anybody has questions or doubts with, with regard to the integrity of Scripture and you want someone to have a conversation with, I'd be privileged to have that conversation with you. Ask me any question you want. Throw darts at the Bible. Would love that. We could at least dialogue and talk about Scripture. I love that. Okay, so book recommendations. One of the reasons why I like this passage in John is, is, is an example of John chapter 1, verse 14. But uh, I'm not going to allude to it now or show you the detail now. But I think there are three statements, um, three things that are said or described in this passage that are also described in the Gospel of John, even in John chapter 8. So this really is a good place to put it. All right, so there is some tension in this passage. And hopefully with you, it's not just what does that note mean, but rather, what did Jesus just do? There is some tension in this passage and the tension seems to be the demands of the law as opposed to the gift of grace. This is a real-life drama that demonstrates how a sinful person can be declared to be righteous in the sight of a holy God. Which, if you're tracking with the, the essence of the biblical story, that's, that's the main question that the Bible attempts to answer. How is it that a sinful person can be made right in the sight of a holy God? Now, to be clear, the demands of law are good. There's nothing wrong here with the law. When they come and make their assertion, they make their assertion accurately, and they don't twist what Scripture says. We are glad that we have the law. 
The law reveals our sin and it points to Jesus Christ. The law reveals our need for Jesus Christ as Israel's Messiah, our Savior. We are glad that Jesus came to satisfy the demands of the law. The law is good. My aim this morning is to show you from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, that you can face personal sin with Jesus. Personal sin can be faced with Jesus. First, let's look at the demands of the law. The law was clear. Adultery was a, um, excuse me, yeah, adultery was a capital crime. Hmm. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is find, found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. Wow. That might sound barbaric to you. But in context, the law was given to a new nation that was to be a theocracy. In other words, living under the rule of God. Not just a bunch of rules, but living under God's law, God's word. And they were to put God on display as they lived it out. The people of God were to obey the law of God and put the goodness of God on display. I don't think they ever really took that seriously. Strong boundaries were placed around marriage, uh, around the marriage relationship in order to protect it. We find out later in the New Testament era that uh, marriage can be a picture of the gospel. Perhaps that's part of why God wanted to protect marriage so much way back in the Old Testament days, book of Deuteronomy. They're not even into the promised land yet, and he's given out these directives. So the religious leaders come to Jesus <clears throat> with an adulterous woman, and they are correct in their assessment of the Old Testament. However, something is missing here. Did you catch it as we read? Give you a hint. It's really not something, it's someone. Where's the man? It takes two to tango. So the woman was caught in the act of adultery. Where's the guy? Their concern really isn't for the law. Their concern is to trap Jesus. Look at verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. If you've read straight through the Gospels, you've encountered several traps by now. Uh, the most, um, the, the abundant, um, I get the, the, the place where the traps occur in, in abundance would be the last week of Jesus' life. When he's in the temple courts trying to teach, and um, they send one scribe, one expert in the law, one Pharisee after another, with the intention of trapping Jesus. And in this particular case, they think they can trap him by playing into his compassion. If they can get Jesus to let this gal off somehow, he's compromised the, the, uh, the revered law of God. He cannot be Messiah. So they're trying to use the compassion of Jesus against him. And in an interesting twist, Jesus puts their sin against them. He totally changes direction of this conversation. But don't, don't uh, miss this. Jesus does not dismiss the charge, nor does he diminish the sin. So he doesn't say to these guys, you know, it, it's not that bad of a thing. She loved him anyway. Sorry about that. She loved him anyway, and it's just all good because I accept everybody. 
doesn't say anything like that. And he also doesn't um, diminish the sin and call into question the Old Testament writing. What our culture can sometimes do is to suggest that Jesus accepted everyone. Or sometimes it's expressed present tense. Well, Jesus accepts everybody. And they can even point to a passage like this. See, she did the adultery thing, which we only call an affair these days. She, She did that thing because that was in her heart to do that, and Jesus accepted her. Again, I'd like to point out, just for clarity, that Jesus did not say that adultery does not matter. Still, I think he's still under the uh, jurisdiction of Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. Jesus did not say that the religious leaders were wrong. In fact, Jesus did not say anything against the law. In terms of his response, the charge still stands. This woman has committed adultery, albeit a trap. And there is no guy, but she has done it. Now, Jesus, again, is being closely watched to see if he could somehow break the law. And what they did not anticipate was Jesus using their sin against them. The way this comes out is in the response of Jesus. Doesn't say anything about the law or the woman. He adheres to the law and gives his consent to stoning with one qualification. If you're going to throw your rocks, you need to be without sin. So where do we have that? Verse 7. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. I don't think that's an injunction against... um, any and all judges who are imperfect. I think this statement is spoken in context to mean the sin that is present right there in front of everybody. So it could be a couple of things. It could be the the sin of entrapment, basically. This is a a farce. You know, as far as we know, the guy is there in the group holding a rock, ready to stone. But anyway, there's, there's no guy that's also presented to Jesus. So this thing is rigged from the get-go. We can all understand that. There's some kind of entrapment that went, and, and, and so there's, there's been conversations, there's been planning, there's been a selection. Okay, you go here, you go there. At just the right time, we're going to storm the house and rip the bodies apart. Somehow there's been a plan, and they are all, it could be that they're all implicit in this plan. But it could also be something else. It could be that Jesus is speaking of the the crime of adultery, which if you look into the early portions of the Gospel of Matthew, you understand that adultery is not just the act. It's the desire of the heart, the lust, the looks, the lingering fantasies and the desires. All of that, Jesus says, is part of adultery. Okay, now, seriously, Is there a man among them holding those rocks who would be innocent of of that? Either way you look at it, and it could be both. But I don't think it's so broad as to include every judge in every circumstance 
you got to be perfect in order to cast this stone. In order to execute judgment, you got to be perfect. I don't think it's that. I think it's that the particular sin that Jesus is looking at, that everybody else can see. One of these two or both. They're part of the plan of entrapment, which is a, a, a lot of sinful activity has gone on here. Or, you know what, they're dubious moral people as it is, and their purity is not intact. Either way, Jesus has them. Jesus exposes them by applying the very same law that they were trying to apply against the woman. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7. Side note, I happen to think Deuteronomy may have been Jesus' favorite book because he quoted it in the wilderness against Satan three times and it worked. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, the people doing the stoning are to be witnesses, not participants. And it sure smells fishy that there's no guy there. I think this is a trap. And they are, they are all complicit here. Now, we all struggle with being too quick to blame, accuse, judge, and condemn. The challenge that Jesus presented to the religious leaders on this particular day in this particular setting is to replace condemnation with self-examination. Okay, you, you guys think about it. If you're free of sin, go ahead and throw the stone. And one by one, the older ones left first, perhaps they had recognition. The woman was caught in the act, but these men had planned the whole thing and they weren't moral paragons of virtue. So much so that they are not qualified to judge and they are not qualified to execute judgment. So I'm going to try to give this to you in a, um, a true-to-life example of something that could have happened exactly this way, but it did not. So I'm going to make up a parable. This is the parable of the pancakes. Let's say my wife Julie was making breakfast for me one Saturday morning and she burned the pancakes. Didn't happen. I'm not throwing my wife under the bus publicly. Did not happen. Got that? If, if there's anything with me and pancakes, it's probably going to be a daddy-daughter date, and I'll take Katie out somewhere, and we'll have some pancakes. Very rarely do I, uh, do we even share a breakfast. I tend to want to eat like 10 minutes after I wake up because of blood sugar issues, but in any case. So you got the point. But let's say my, my wife burned the pancakes, and I got mad. And I made some comments about a burnt offering, and I, I was not very nice, and I just, you know, mad, burnt pancakes. Blame, accuse, judge, and condemn. Right there. Pastor Carl nailing his wife. Wow. Take the offense and stretch it out a bit. Okay, so now we, let, let, let's move it back. Let's back the truck up. No longer are we talking about the specific offense of burning pancakes. Let's back it up. Very general. Julie made a mistake. It just so happens I've never burned pancakes on a Saturday morning. Rarely even make pancakes. But I can say, I've never been burned pancake. So if I go tit for tat, on a very specific occasion, yeah, you know what? I didn't do what she did. But if I just stretch it out a little bit more, I make mistakes. I would wager a guess that some of my mistakes have hurt my wife. That humbles me. And it puts it in proper perspective. And then I realize... 
Who am I to judge and condemn my wife for doing the very same thing that I have done to her? I've got no authority to judge and certainly no authority to execute judgment. These men were guilty enough for planning the whole thing, but they were also guilty of falling short of God's standard of moral purity. Their only shot is the Savior. And yet they drop their rocks and they walk away. Now, if you were making this up in the ancient world, you would have written it differently. A better story would be they drop their rocks and then they drop to their knees. And they receive Jesus as Israel's Messiah and their Savior. Because that's their only hope. But instead, they were right there, yards away from the Savior, and they walked away. Don't do that. Here's something that is so often misunderstood in our culture. Please understand this. Where grace is present, sin does not disappear. You know, it's not like Jesus said some magic words and the guys leave and wacko presto, sin just evaporated. It's not like the goalposts were moved. It's not like sin disappeared. Jesus did not say that this woman was not guilty. So when Jesus makes this great statement in verse 7, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. The tension is not the innocence of the woman. The tension is in the guilt of the accusers. So what did Jesus just do here? I think our culture could read this passage and surmise that he let the woman go, and therefore the standard didn't matter. I disagree. Jesus placed this woman under his jurisdiction, basically saying, I do not condemn you. And in doing this, Jesus exalted himself above the law. There's going to be a new way to measure righteousness. And it will not be by law, it will be by grace. Our righteousness is built on the foundation of the grace of God. You see, Jesus knows the cross is going to happen. And that means he also knows the old covenant will soon be obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. The new, the new covenant will be inaugurated with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's see how Paul understood this to be. Romans chapter 3. So if I've got you in uh, John chapter 8 and you've got a Bible that you turn pages, it's to the right. Go past the book of Acts and into the book of Romans chapter 3. 
Really what I want is verse 25, but I think I need to begin reading with verse 21 so that it makes sense. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we'll begin our reading there and make sense of what Paul helps us to make sense of. Paul, having understood the, the core of the gospel, he now amplifies by saying this. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So righteousness from God being able to be called right by a holy God. How can a sinner do that? Verse 22. This righteousness from God, second time has said that, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, not just believe anything you want, but believe in the person of the Son of God, Israel's Messiah, our Savior, Son of God, that person, to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So I think in this... uh, true-to-life event that, that Jesus is, is showing us what this passage of Scripture looks like, even though it hasn't been written yet. He's showing us redemption in Him, even though the fullness of redemptive activity hasn't occurred yet. He's showing us what it looks like to have a risen Savior. Now, we're ready for verse 25. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So we're at this very unique period of time where Jesus is on the face of the earth. Cross hasn't happened yet. Resurrection hasn't happened yet. Paul's not yet written the book of Romans. Jesus is standing right there and he says to the woman, I do not condemn you. How is it that Jesus could say that? He knows he's going into the cross to pay for that very sin that she has committed, including all others, including the sins of the guys who were there with the entrapment. He's going to pay for that too. He's going to pay for all of it, all of the moral debt of humanity. Jesus will take upon himself so that the gift of God's grace can be given freely. So that if you are in Christ, you are not condemned. And you should never, ever, ever fear the judgment of God. Because God's judgment on your sin has already occurred. Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. In his grace, Jesus paid the debt of your sin before you were born. Whew! Amazing. That doesn't mean Jesus automatically accepts everybody because he did that thing on the cross. It does mean you can now face your personal sin with Jesus. And you have no need to walk away. When you come to Jesus for salvation or even for renewal of relationship, your sin doesn't go away. It's not like it just dissipates and disappears somehow. It is dealt with by the grace of God. A grace that is bigger 
and all of your sin. John chapter 8 is a picture of the new reality. Righteousness is now dependent upon grace rather than law. And so I confidently say to you, Christian, go. Live your lives and sin no more. Would you pray with me, please? Dear God, we thank you that that story sits in John chapter 8 exactly the way it does. Thank you for those little brackets in that note that says the earliest manuscript. We want to know that nobody was trying to dupe us. So thank you for that. We praise you, dear God, for sending your son to be full of grace and truth. In other words, to put grace and truth on display that we might know what it looks like for the Son of God to live here and treat people the way you do. We just stand in awe of you and your amazing grace. Undeserving as we all are, you give your grace abundantly and freely. Boy, that should just move us to praise you daily. My friends, if it's your need this morning to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, well, let me introduce you to him. In fact, I already have. The word of God has, and we have in music and song. Please pray with me now. Jesus, I understand you have come to treat me with grace rather than law. I want that. I need that. I desperately need my sins to be forgiven. And so please forgive me of my sin. It is the desire of my heart to be like this woman, to go from here and to sin no more, to not, not leave here and then embrace more sin, more lifestyle that is displeasing to you. I, I want to leave that. Make me new, please. God, for all of us, we need that daily renewal. We are so quick to revert back to the old ways. We need that time with you, and we need your, your sanctifying work, your Holy Spirit powerful work to build in our hearts and our minds a new way of living. We want to represent you well in this life so that a watching world might catch some small glimpse of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.